Back in episode 14, I had a conversation with Dr. Ying Chun about whether or not China represents a model for development, for economic development, to countries like Pakistan, especially when you view it from the perspective of labor. See, the thing about China that we usually hear is the story of great poverty reduction that over the past 40 years, ever since China moved from a socialistic or planned economy to a market-oriented economy, China's achieved massive reductions in poverty, gains in income at the bottom of the distribution. And so if you want to develop, let's look to China. But Dr. Ying Chun warned us that we have to look at this critically because the increases in incomes have been accompanied by rapid and huge increases in inequality between the poor and the rich. And also that the working conditions for a lot of these workers are quite miserable. And not only that, but the workers lost this very important social safety net that they used to have when they were involved in collective forms of organization, usually associated with where they lived, which was also where they worked. Now, the standard story about China goes that from 1949 to 1978, under the rule of the Chinese Communist Party, they pursued a socialist path, but it was not very productive. It did not lead to a rapid development of industry, of other kinds of productive forces, and that it was holding Chinese productivity back. A signature aspect of this was collectivized agriculture, where agriculture was not done through individual households, but rather instead of private ownership of land, you had public ownership of land. And not only that, but public organization of production. So people were supposed to be working together and producing together. But because this stifled individual creativity or individual incentive, it is supposed to have led to a stagnation rather than a rapid increase in grain output, in food output. So when China adopted market-friendly reforms in the 1970s, starting in 1978, the main thing that they did was they decollectivized agriculture and they split up these collectives into individual responsibility or household responsibility system. And once every household was responsible for its own plot of land, productivity is supposed to have shot up. Not only that, but because you introduce the profit incentive into society through other reforms, through allowing foreign investment, through allowing private ownership of industry, that led to a rapid industrialization as well. And so as agricultural productivity increased, it freed up labor that could then go work in that new and rapidly developing industrial sector. So that's supposed to have been good and driven up these incomes. Now, the thing is, I don't know a lot or didn't really know a lot about the collective agriculture system outside of certain stereotypes. And I don't think most people do understand what these collectives were. And why would the Chinese Communist Party pursue them in the first place? Why would they keep going with them for about 30 years if they were not so good at production? Also, did collectivization cause tens of millions of deaths and a great famine in the so-called Great Leap Forward? then why did the Chinese Communist Party change its direction? Why did they decide to decollectivize? And what were the consequences of that? And then what does all of this mean for China as a model of development? What does it mean, maybe for even a broader question, is China socialist or is it capitalist? 
Welcome to Introduction to Political Economy, where we talk about the relationship between power and production, between the past and present, and about other alliterations. I'm your host, Noman Ali, Assistant Professor of Political Economy at the Lahore University of Management Sciences in Pakistan. To talk about agrarian change, collectivization, and decollectivization in China, I was joined by Dr. Jun Xu, who is an associate professor of economics at the City University of New York. He's on leave from Howard University in the United States of America. He's also the author of From Commune to Capitalism, How China's Peasants Lost Collective Farming and Gained Urban Poverty. I've been doing research um, uh, political economy, uh, economic development, and some economic history. Uh, and most of the work, uh, while they do have a world historical uh, perspective, uh, it fo- mostly focuses on, on China. Okay, so we have the Republican Revolution in 1911. It overthrows the, the, the last dynasty in China. Uh, and then about 30 38 years later, we then have a communist revolution in China. It's led by the Chinese Communist Party. Um, and I think that's that's maybe a great place to, to begin discussing this question of agrarian change in China and how it proceeds. Uh, so most people will know, or they should know, they ought to know, that after 1949, or even before 1949, the Chinese Communist Party began to redistribute land uh, to households uh, in China, which land was dominated by these landlords uh, who owned most of the land or by rich peasants. And the Chinese Communist Party had a commitment to peasant egalitarianism, that everybody would have their own plot of land. Um, and by all accounts, this leads to an increase in grain output. I mean, part of the problem is because of the war, there was probably uh, a lower production. But because everybody had their own plot of land uh, to farm, they, they kind of put their... their uh, spirits into it and they raise the grain output in china um and there's authors like joe studwell who's written an important book called how asia works and and he argues look that system is the ideal system it could have worked so well so why then did the chinese communist party see the need to change its policy and go from individually operated households towards collectivization and and communes Actually, if you, can, if you could even just explain to us what, what even, you know, broadly is collectivization and why did the Chinese Communist Party see that as something uh, to go toward? After the 1949 revolution, uh, what the Communist Party and the government did was uh, they carried out this nationwide uh, land reform. Uh, as land revolution, to be precise, uh, they would take over uh, land that previously owned by a small group of the uh, population, uh, the estimated uh, inequality was around uh, 20% or 10% of the population would own 70% or even more land in the countryside. Um, and uh, th- so they would take those land and they would redistribute the land to every household. Um, and so it was a very egalitarian process. Every household, uh, they would participate and get a plot of land. And this process was also, uh, I think this was a wonderful documentation of this process called Fanshan, uh, written by William Hinton, uh, many, uh, around 
he wrote it, I think he wrote the book in the 60s, although he, he witnessed, he observed the whole process in the 1940s. Um, so after the process, uh, as you mentioned, it was a, uh, so you have a society, a rural society consisting of millions of small households. Uh, each of them have uh, relatively equal access to, to, to farms. Um, the, the problem with that approach is that uh, uh, even if they had access, let's equal access to approximately the same amount of land, these households, they didn't have, they didn't come from the same background. Um, some families, they, they, let's say they have more uh, working labor. Uh, they can do it relatively well, or they happen to have some draft animals so that which would enable them to produce more efficiently. Uh, or they happen to have some other things that would um, um, help them uh, facilitate the growth, uh, the, the production, and and um, uh, protect them from possible natural uh, disasters. Uh, it was a time when a bad harvest, um, a bad rain, um, or a drought uh, could simply uh, destroy entire years' uh, output, and so it it was a very uh, you see a lot of um, uh, differences among all those households, between villages, uh, between all those provinces. Um, and very quickly, uh, the many small farmers, they had to, let's say they got sick uh, or they just happened to not be able to uh, produce uh, very well. Um, um, and uh, they would accumulate debts, uh, or they have to, for other purposes, they, they have to eventually sell the land um, to maintain the basic level of living. And if, if, that, if that trend continues, uh, the countryside would very quickly saw a restoration of the old type of society that... Uh, some of the more successful farmers would accumulate land and then they can become the new class of uh, landlords. Or uh, some people at the time, they hoped that they would actually become the capitalist farmers uh, instead of being the feudal lords. They would, they would uh, use more machines, they would uh, invest in production, hire workers to be wage laborers, etc. But those, the, I think people at the time particularly uh, uh, central leaders like Chairman Mao, he saw this very clearly from his own investigations that uh, within a, a couple months, in one or two years, uh, there was already a clear trend of polarization in the countryside, and which was, uh, again, against the very idea of, of the Communist Party. They wanted to build a egalitarian society they wanted to build socialism. Um, uh, if you let that happen, continue, uh, it's very clear that it, it, the Communist Party will not be able to build uh, the kind of socialist society they were trying to build. Right. Uh, so politically, that was a strong uh, motivation from their side that they need to 
bring a big change to this. Uh, economically, you can also say that uh, in the in the in the urban areas in the cities, um, the the government also wanted to catch up. They wanted to catch up with the more uh, uh, developed, richer countries. Uh, they were they want to catch up with the Soviet Union, um, and among others, um, that meant that they need to make investment, um, and uh, uh, they also need to have a um, let's say a stable source of uh, raw materials, um, or stable source of food, and a stable source of labor force. Um, if the again, if the countryside will be dominated by a new, let's say, rich farmer, new class of rich farmer or landlords, uh, there's no guarantee that uh, you would act. You can actually work with them to do this whole industrialization. Um, it is always better politically, economically, to work with uh, a collective uh, that is. Uh, 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 led by uh, the, the Communist Party. So I think that was the main motivation behind this. So what, uh, what, would a, you know, what does the process of collectivization, very broadly, because we're going to go into this in a bit more detail in, in a few uh, minutes, but uh, just if, if you were to say in one sentence, what is collectivization? Yes, collectivization is a process that uh, gradually uh, uh, um, transform the private ownership of land, private ownership of animals or any other machines into public ownership. So that is uh, collectivization. Okay, so you go from private ownership to public ownership, uh, and uh, I guess I guess the the point also is that everybody uh, is working together rather than working on individual how uh, plots. Yes, although that can. That really depends on how the collective uh, devises uh, their own work plans. Uh, they don't have to always work together. They can have specific jobs assigned to different different people depending on the different skills. Uh, but uh, the collective would be a, a local organization. Uh, uh, it's different, let's say, for, from the uh, state-owned enterprises, which is owned by the entire uh, society, there's a whole nation, but the, this collective is owned by the local community. And this village or this uh, uh, this small group within the village, uh, then so that within the village you, have, you could have different collectives. Within every province, every county, you can have thousands of different collectives. They can also compete, uh, and, but they also collaborate. Okay, I, I want to get into that uh, in a bit, but before we do, I just want to get this out of the way. Um, the, the, by all accounts, the collectivization process is supposed to have been a great disaster, uh, especially as it was done under this this program called the Great Leap Forward. Um, you know, and according to many people, like 30 million people died uh, of, of famine because of the policies of collectivization. Um, so, how, you know, it, it doesn't that show or prove that actually collectivization was a pretty bad idea? It is indeed very important to address uh, 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 some of the major uh, problems, errors in the, uh, in the history of um, uh, collective 
uh, agriculture. Uh, although uh, the the particular number that you ju just mentioned, uh, the 30 million deaths uh, during due to collectivization, that could be uh, that could be misleading in in several ways. For example, uh, the 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 alleged uh, 30 million deaths uh, took place uh, during the three years of hardship uh, that was 1959, 1960, and 1961. Um, uh, and, uh, and that was already after several years after uh, collectivization. The collectivization process uh, was between 1952 and 1956. So it took about three, four years to finish collectivization. Uh, during that process, uh, the agricultural production kept increasing. And also when people finished collectivization uh, in 1957, 1958, uh, the harvest was, was okay. Uh, there was no major uh, uh, you know, major fall of decline of agricultural produce um, in any by any indicator. Um, so it 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 uh, the 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 uh, the difficult years, hardship years, uh, they were not directly due to collectivization itself. It was in this process called Great Leap Forward, where there was. A strong wave of uh, industrialization, rural industrialization, urban industrialization, and uh, it was a strong, like a big push that uh, they try to organize people to build all different kind of sectors uh, out of nothing. Um, which the Great Leap Forward was a great success in many ways. Uh, most of the major. Uh, infrastructures that we still see in the countryside, they were built in during that three, four years, when they at least got started um, during that three, three years. Um, many colleges, especially those who are not, that didn't, you know, they don't, they're not in the big cities of those colleges, they play a very important role in education, in local development, they were also built in that period. Uh, and there are uh, uh, many other things that the, uh, that the, 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 the rural workers, they have tried, uh, and there were failures for, for sure. Um, but, but I think overall, I think Great Leap Forward, uh, I think it showed a lot of great potential in how a poor society can organize itself and do something uh, remarkable. Um, now, back to the number 30 million deaths. I think that's really a myth uh, to, to argue there's 30 million deaths. The, um, the 30 million, that's a very large number um, in any society. Uh, and uh, it was not so, it was not so straightforward to anyone who lived through that period uh, that, because 30 million deaths meant basically every, every, in every household, every family, there got to be someone or actually more than one that would die in that, in that period, in that three years. 
uh, I don't think that that was the experience of my family, for example. Uh, I don't think that was the experience that of all the many families that have interviewed uh, for the for this research. Um, I think people, when they come up with this number, 30 million, um, it was, again, I mean, it's the, the, the way that people produce these numbers has, it, it itself has a long history. Uh, they, you can calculate numbers based on uh, the so-called excess death. Uh, there's increase in death rate, you can calculate, okay, so how many people uh, uh, they died uh, more than last year, they can calculate this. And uh, if you do this alone, it wouldn't give you the 30 million number. Uh, if you calculate, let's say, uh, the decline in birth rate, so you can say that people that could have born, have been born, that they, the parents decided that they don't want to give birth. If you count those numbers in, you might get close to 30 million. Uh, but uh, in, but in, in, in practice, when when the journalists, when or when many non-specialists, they talk about this period, they simply choose a very um, uh, a dramatic number, 30 million. And uh, actually, some other writers I've seen, they said, okay, actually, whatever number you come up with, uh, you, it, it must be an underestimation. So why don't we just uh, give a, a, a bigger factor. 30 million has to be timed by another, you know, 150%. Uh, so that, that will give you 45 million uh, deaths in that period. So you can, the number can keep adding up. Uh, I don't think any, there is, it, I think it's hard to actually show this was the case. I think in some localities, the, uh, there, there is the starvation was particularly severe, um, and there, and there is some good research about that. And most of those 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 scandals, those big uh, starvation famine cases, were identified during the Great Depression, during the Great Leap Forward, and also after that. Um, and those were uh, became public knowledge uh, nationwide that. That people died in that particular county, um, uh, but I think the thirty million figure was more political than than academic. Uh, and plus, there was uh, in those days, in those three years, two years, uh, the weather was particularly bad. I think people, scholars have done research about this because there was around the same. Uh, um, um, Multitude, I guess. When I mean, uh, some place like the people, when you study the weather in the United States are around the same years, uh, the weather was also very bad. The harvest, the, the output also declined. So even without, let's say, without the Great Leap Forward, without some of the policy mistakes in that period, uh, I think was likely there would be a famine anyway in, in China. So this again, this doesn't mean that there's uh, everything in Great Leap Forward uh, was was okay, or there was no tragedy in this historical process. But it's just to say that the 30 million number is probably a great exaggeration, and uh, and there's positive aspects of this Great Leap Forward uh, movement as well. But none of this actually has 
a direct relationship with the collectivization, which was already done uh, three or two years before that. Okay, so there's there's maybe particular policies uh, of industrialization that exacerbate uh, a possible drought weather situation. Uh, yes. It, it doesn't have a causal relationship with collectivization or collective production. Yes, I, I think so. I mean, the, based on the uh, some of the official records uh, or local records I've read, uh, there are cases, for example, in the collectivization process uh, that farmers, uh, especially those well-to-do farmers, they thought, okay, you're going to take my, 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 my cattle away from me. Uh, why don't I just kill, kill them? I can eat them. So the, there is, uh, um, uh, I think in, in multiple places, there were reports that those farmers would just uh, slaughter their the draft animals. Uh, that was definitely, you know, happening. Uh, uh, but uh, there, I, I don't think there was any actual record in those years of collectivization that uh, they, the farmers would actually die from, from the failure of production. That was not the case in the process in the, between 1952, uh, 1953 to, uh, and, and 1956. And if I understand correctly, the, the issue with industrialization was that the, um, the government set output targets for agriculture that were completely unrealistic um, and that they needed to sell the grain so that they could import machinery and finance industrialization, but what they were collecting or, or taking out of the collectives was just far too much. I think so. Yes, a big part of that was uh, they were trying to uh, pro procure too much food um, out of the countryside to support industrialization. Um, it, it's either they can sell them uh, or it become part of basically the wage funds for the working new recruited workers uh, in the factories, then uh, uh, very quickly I think the uh, this this uh, uh, very exaggerated plans uh, numbers uh, they you know they started to face reality and uh, many of those many of those newly recruited workers they were sent back to the countryside. At the same time, in the in the countryside itself. Uh, there were a, a lot of mobilization of, of labor to work on projects such as some of the reservoirs, some of the dams, some of the infrastructures. And uh, they didn't really pay that much attention to uh, the agricultural production itself. And I've heard multiple uh, stories from different people uh, who have uh, working that period said um, because there was not there was not enough people uh, left in the village to take care of the the harvest um, and because they were all working in a, diff a distant site working on some industrial project when the food uh, were ready to be harvested there was not enough people and uh, a lot of those food got wasted in the fields. Um, so I think a lot of those played a part. Okay, so there, there's a lot of stuff that's going on, uh, but again, as you said, it's not it's not causally related to collective production itself. Yes. So I want to ask you what uh, 
collective production actually looks like, because I think this may, might be very hard for most of us to understand. Uh, most of us are not in agriculture in the first place, so we don't even know what agriculture is like. But especially, um, so there's a saying in Urdu, it goes, pirani, tu pirani, kon pani, which means, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if I'm a queen and you're a queen, then who's going to uh, collect the water from the well? Right? Like who's going to do the work if, all, if everybody's so equal, if everybody's the ruling class, then who's actually going to do the work? So if you've got equal uh, land or, or, or land is publicly owned, it's the commons, you know, doesn't that lead to like a tragedy of the commons? Does that, does that mean that there's going to be laziness? There's going to be people shirking work there. So, so what does, what does it actually look like that when you're in a collective, like how do you do organized production? Yes, that's a wonderful question. Um, the, uh, and I like the, 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 the quote that you gave in Wudu uh, because it, it does illustrate a, a very important aspect of uh, political economy. Uh, if, the, if the economy is based on, uh, is based on uh, exploitation, is based on uh, a, a base, some mechanism of coercion that uh, make, make, make workers work, uh, then if you do give workers some guaranteed job, guaranteed income, uh, and you still maintain the, uh, the inequality of this hierarchy in the society, uh, then uh, the, there will be some inco- incompatibility emerging. The workers would, uh, uh, I think they, would, they, they can say no to, to work because uh, I don't want to work for you. <laughs> the problem, because what you know, whatever I produce, uh, I only receive my wage, <laughs> and you get the profits. So I think that it would be a normal uh, reaction from the working class uh, in a class society. Uh, in in a in a society that is trying to get rid of different in the class division, uh, they're trying to build transition into socialism. Uh, the, the 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 consideration could have could could have different elements. For example, uh, uh, the uh, you can the the members of the collective they can also feel that they are doing something greater than themselves. Uh, and the idea that you are contributing to the community uh, and you are also part of the community it's it's your community. I mean that. That idea, the sense of belonging, uh, the sense of being part of the ruling class itself—it's uh, a great uh, motivator. Uh, it helps you to to do your work because you don't feel you're working for somebody else. Mm. You feel that you're working for yourself and your family, your friends, and for all the people in the community. So it, it's it's a it's a I think it's a it's a real feeling that uh, many people felt at the time. Uh, uh, but sometimes even in in the West, uh, in the small groups, in the co-ops, you, you sometimes you also see that kind of sentiment that uh, this is not, you know, I'm not being, uh, uh, I'm not working for uh, someone who sit in the office and don't even care about production. I'm, you know, I'm working for this whole collective, this group. Uh, that also uh, could be a positive factor. There are other 
possible negative factors as well, uh, as you mentioned. Um, uh, the, the, work, the war people, uh, and uh, that they felt uh, that uh, I, even if I don't do much work, uh, I can still get some reasonable uh, payment. So why should I work? But the problem uh, in, the, in a non-capitalist society is that you don't live, uh, you don't live in a very, uh, um, you, you, don't, you live in a different kind of social environment. Um, a lot of those, you live in the society, you have all those social relations. And if you shirk, let's say use this term shirk, um, everybody knows. They know you're the bad guy in the community, and uh, you you would have a seriously you have a difficult time in finding a partner if you want to have one. Uh, you would not be you would be not you would not be a honored member of the community uh, because you can't you know there's no way you can cheat everyone. Right. And for the community, it's very easy for us to figure out that huh that guy is. It's taking advantage of us. You know, in the capitalist firm, if your fellow worker is, is doing something, uh, is, is trying to uh, not work as hard, you don't have the incentive to say, hey, you don't do that. <laughs> uh, because this is not your company. Uh, why should you care? Uh, but in a collective where you do get a share uh, and you, the, the, whatever other people are doing, they affect your well-being then you would take this seriously. And you would say, why are you doing this? This is our community. And uh, you, you would get a, you would be defamed. And that is a very severe punishment in any such rural communities in those days at least. Uh, so there is strong peer pressure incentive uh, to, as a check that, that prevent a, a widespread shirking. Um, that being said, if there is, uh, if the whole community is is uh, dysfunctional, um, disorganized, uh, it, uh, it could be possible that uh, this this community, this this uh, collective environment was not properly running. When it's not properly running, uh, then uh, everyone uh, would tend to reduce their labor inputs. That's something that we, we, uh, we can observe as well. But those were not uh, the majority of the cases in the collectives. So, uh, so if, if it's well organized, if people are doing their work, then, then we see the outcomes fairly good. And if it's poorly organized, then not necessarily. I think there's also, uh, you know, in your book, I was I was reading about, and I I enjoyed your book because it's one of the first times uh, that I got a detailed understanding of how the uh, a work point system works. Uh, so, <laughs> can, it, it, if I understand correctly, it's basically like the whole uh, kind of collective agrees that a certain task uh, equals this many points, and then at the end of the harvest, you would then tally who did what work, who gets how many points. So it's not that everybody is getting an equal payment necessarily, but it's it's it really is very much from each according to their work uh, to each according to their work, or sorry, from each according to their ability to each according to their work. Right. Uh, there is no general formula for how a collective um, 
makes its dis- decision on distribution, because uh, uh, there is, I think there is only a general guideline that this is uh, we're trying to build socialism and uh, a collective should have this and that principles. Uh, but in practice, uh, different teams, different collectives, they would have their own different practices. Um, one of the examples that uh, the actual income that we receive, uh, they would ha- come in two parts. Uh, the, f- the one part is uh, something like a guaranteed income. So as long as you are a part of this community, the collective, you will receive a certain amount of food, a certain amount of other things uh, that the collective would give you at the end of this, this cycle. Uh, the second part uh, is, as I said, it's dependent on your work, uh, and that would involve the work points. Now, the work points is also a tricky uh, question because uh, this is not a standard uh, company that we're talking about. Who is who has authority to give you points um, to decide that how much you would receive? Uh, in uh, again, this there is no general formula. In many collectives, uh, they simply followed a very, I think, a very simplistic formula. So they look at the strongest uh, uh, male labor in this village, and they would define basically uh, whatever this person can do in a day. Uh, Let's say we give it 10 points. Mm. Um, And uh, so that become a standard. Uh, If a female labor, uh, the standard female labor, they would say, oh, then they would only get get eight points. Again, there is, from, from today's standpoint, we can say there's, so uncertain of the inequality there because mm. why are you giving females uh, uh, less points? But that's what many of those collectives did back in the day. And if there were uh, people who couldn't do much work, very weak physically, or they just didn't participate, participate much, um, they would get lower than eight points, six, seven, or even five. Uh, so that you, there's, that's one way of doing it. The other way of doing it was instead of giving a predetermined formula of how much points you can you can get in a day, uh, they would have a discussion after a day's work. Uh, the it's a collective. They have a meeting, and uh, uh, you you would uh, you would say, okay, I think I can get nine points today, and then you basically. It's like gave, giving a testimony in front of uh, this 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 group, and they would question you, "Why do you think so?" And uh, people would give comments that how they have observed that they they what they think you should be getting. So it is out of this group uh, discussion, democratic discussion, that eventually the distribution will be determined. Um, so you might get more than what you thought or less than what you thought. Uh, it, in practice, there are different ways of doing this. Uh, but uh, this this group meeting uh, um, method was promoted for, for some time. Um, it didn't, I don't, I don't think it was actually widely uh, implemented, uh, but it was a model at the time. 
that reminds me of how I grade some of my uh, group assignments for students. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> you guys decide how much, um, who gets what, right? Yes. Um, that's interesting. Um, so overall, how would you describe the performance of the collective? So they, they basically last from about 19, um, the mid-1950s until about 1979 or so. So you have over 20 years to assess the performance of these collectives. Um, so what are, what are, in your mind, some of the main achievements? Right. I think the collectives and in the countryside, they were all organized into different uh, communes. I call the people's communes. So the communes, uh, the collectives, they were, um, I think they, they, they had several major achievements. Um, uh, one thing was uh, agricultural production. Um, they were able to promote agricultural production uh, greatly during the twenty some years uh, when they were uh, they were uh, they were around, and uh, uh, the uh, there is if you look at the national data, uh, the uh, the production of grain, uh, rice, wheat, uh, that. Uh, increased from about uh, 200 million tons, uh, metric tons, to about um, 300 million metric tons by the end of 1970s. Um, so it was a, um, a very reasonable uh, rate of growth. Um, uh, at the same time, the, the, the collectives also uh, were able to promote uh, a lot of new technology. Uh, uh, the green revolution uh, that uh, the, the many international agencies and developed countries were trying to uh, uh, push, let's say, in India, in some other places, uh, the China was also doing it at the same time, independently. Uh, and it was not a process that uh, ben only benefited some of the uh, uh, well-to-do uh, farmers. It, many of the new seeds, new varieties, uh, new technologies, they benefit the entire, all the, the entire uh, collectives. Um, and so there is a lot of uh, uh, such education and training uh, among the peasants, uh, the farmers. Um, and uh, so that was, I think it was a, a dramatic achievement. Uh, many people um, started to have an understanding of uh, uh, science and technology, uh, which became also very useful even after the collectives were gone. Um, uh, at the same time, the collective were also, I think, instrumental in building uh, this widespread uh, medical care uh, system, um, the, the so-called barefoot doctors, uh, they, they were essentially uh, village members who were selected to go through a, some basic medical training um, and so that they can, when they come back to the village, they have uh, some basic working knowledge of how to treat some of the uh, most commonly seen uh, diseases, uh, and so they would uh, be able to give you a shot if needed, 
they would uh, give you scientific advice uh, how to deal with some of the, the illness. And uh, they were also uh, the pioneers of uh, incorporating indigenous you know, local knowledge, medical knowledge into the medical uh, science. Uh, they would uh, collect information that for many years, people were saying eating this grass, eating this herb, or this some fruits of the tree can cure certain kind of illness. And they would collect all those information and all the doctors, barefoot doctors would come collect all the, combine them together. Then uh, they work with uh, the uh, the doctors or scientists in the in the in the institutes they can they can produce something that might be um, uh, more widely implemented or promoted in the country. So there's a lot of such process going on, and there is uh, a great improvement in the life expectancy of uh, of the uh, of the of the Chinese people uh, during the between the 1950s and 19 early uh, 1980s or late 1970s, uh, uh, many people estimate that the, the ex life expectancy increased by more than 20 years, maybe 30 years. So it was a great achievement by, by, any, by any standard. Um, and that has had a lot to do with this medical system supported by the collective because you don't have to, you don't really have to pay the doctor. Uh, they are the collective workers, just like anyone in the community. Um, and you don't have to travel far to the city to, 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 for some basic uh, diseases. You have a local doctor that can take care of you. Uh, and if you do have something that the local, the barefoot doctor cannot take care of, then you will be transferred to a uh, urban hospital. Um, at the same time, the communes, the collectives also set up uh, all kinds of schools. The principle at the time was that every village would need to have one primary school. Uh, and this was a time, uh, education was always a, such a privilege uh, in, all the, in all the countries, especially in the uh, global south. Uh, getting education was, was only the, what the elites, elite families can do. Uh, but by setting up uh, schools in all the villages, um, everyone, every school age children, every child, they can get education um, for free. So uh, it was definitely the the beginning of of, of uh, 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 that uh, where, where uh, like for example, my my parents how they got educated. They went to the village schools set up by the collectives, and um, um, and of course the schools. There is no, in a, in a poor country, when you try to set up millions of schools, and the first constraint would be, but you don't have qualified teachers. Mm -hmm. uh, you don't, but, but you can never prepare everything before you do something. You, you, you learn by doing. Right. Um, and uh, what, the, the, what the local schools, what they did was that they would hire their own graduates. Um, they first have a, some students, some people from the uh, urban schools, um, relatively well trained, they would come to teach, and they would after they train the first generation of, of students after they let's say they graduated middle school, 
the middle school graduates would go back to teach primary school uh, and so on. And the high school graduate, they would teach middle school. Um, and so in the commune, in a typical commune, uh, there is different levels. On the basic level, there's a team. So the team uh, or um, about the level above that, a brigade could have one uh, um, a primary school. And um, sometimes they also have a, uh, a middle school. Uh, uh, but for the commune itself, they would have one high school or even more than one, depends on the population. Um, so within the villages uh, in the countryside, a, a student can go through all those training uh, up until high school graduates. That um, was why when in the 1980s, uh, when, the, when, when China took a different course, started to do the market economy, uh, and the Chinese laborers uh, were considered to be uh, uh, very cheap, uh, given the, what their education quality, uh, because they, many of them were high school graduates or middle school graduates. Uh, and that was a, uh, the result of the, this education system that the collective helped to, to build. And by the way, after the communes, after the collectives were, were gone, um, many of those rural schools, they, they disappeared uh, very, very quickly. Um, and, uh, and, at the, and at the same time, uh, what we, as I mentioned a little bit earlier, uh, many major infrastructure that we still see in the Chinese countryside, they were built in the collective uh, years. Uh, the collectives mobilized uh, uh, people uh, to work uh, all those big infrastructure projects. Um, and uh, uh, some research uh, um, that I've read suggests that they, at the average time that the, the commune members, they would work on those collective projects would tend to be uh, maybe 80 or 100 days uh, every year. Um, so that uh, basically meant that the, 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 the commune members, uh, besides their regular agricultural work, they spend all the time on infrastructure building. And they have just a, you know, some brief days of, of a, as a break. Uh, but there was a great labor input uh, to build those huge reservoirs and the aqueducts and some of the, the big tunnels that we still see today. Um, and um, uh, and such such projects, such building, uh, they disappear very quickly. Uh, There's the, such effort; they disappear quickly after the collective work were gone. Um, and until today, many farmers they still they still rely on the old infrastructure building, the common days, um, to provide very basic uh, drinking water and also uh, uh, agricultural irrigation water. So there's a lot of legacies that we still see today, and those were all great achievements out of the collective system. So, so maybe that's actually a good good place to, because you're talking so much about how there's all these achievements, uh, but then there's a turn towards a market economy and that, um, uh, you know, what, what you just said about education, a lot of education opportunities then uh, going away in the market economy turn. 
And uh, I think that that begins in 1979 when the Chinese Communist Party adopts a, a kind of drastically different um, um, overall program, moving away from kind of uh, this kind of egalitarian um, journey towards socialism. And they say, OK, now we're actually going to move toward capitalism uh, or, or as they called it, socialism with Chinese characteristics. Uh, mm -hmm. But that means that we're going to harness uh, the market economy. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, you've noted some of the, the issues with the market economy, but uh, a lot of people, even if they disagree, for example, they, you know, in, in development studies, there, uh, or in the political economy of development, rather, there are those who are more neoliberal or market oriented. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you have those who are, uh, you know, more state oriented, they believe in a strong developmental state. But by and large, both of those views will agree that uh, ending the collectives, and moving again towards individual household production or, or what I believe is called the household responsibility system uh, was actually really important, really good. Uh, there was a rapid increase in productivity, uh, it, uh, which then enabled uh, a, a lot of people to move into industrial labor. Um, and that the, the record of the collective era as far as productivity goes was really not that good. It was very stagnant uh, growth. There was growth, but the growth rate was much, much, much greater, um, uh, you know, immediately after decollectivization, immediately after the collect collectives were ended. Um, so so in that vein, you know, I, 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 uh, I, I want to ask, like, what then was the logic? You described the political and economic logic of collectivization. So what's the political and economic logic of decollectivization? And uh, it, didn't it prove itself to actually be better? These are indeed some of the key issues that uh, people would have uh, uh, disagreements. Um, I think that uh, the first thing I, I want to mention is that in, just in terms of technical efficiency, uh, how, much, how much you can produce out of every unit of land, uh, if you use that, criteria, uh, it's not, the, the, there's no clear superiority of the individualized farming. Uh, for example, let's just look at uh, 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 food production, grain production. Uh, between, let's say, during the whole collective period, say between 1952 and uh, 1978, um, or let's say, uh, only compare when this uh, when collectivization was finished, 1956 and 1978, uh, the, the, the annual uh, growth of, of yield um, uh, during those years was uh, about 2.5-2.6 percent uh, every every year. Uh, and uh, if you look at the um, uh, the, the period, let's say, uh, between 19, 1979 or 1980 uh, and 2010-2008, uh, then the, the growth rate would be much lower. It's only about 2.1%. Uh, and if you only count the period when, when the whole decollectivization was finished, so between 1984 and 2010, 2008, then the growth rate is, would be about half. 
is only 1.3% every, every year. Um, so I think it is fair to say that uh, in terms of uh, agricultural production, the efficiency itself, uh, it, it definitely was growing slower, much slower uh, after decarbonization um, than before. Uh, the same you can say with regarding cotton, which is another important cash crop. Um, uh, the, the increase, the, the very rapid increase in, uh, in, in income, uh, they do not uh, mainly come from, let's say, the people get, uh, get really uh, uh, more productive in producing agricultural products. It was, I think, mostly because people had uh, um, income from other sources, uh, from non-agricultural income. Uh, for example, uh, starting from, I think, 2010 or 2015, uh, more than half of an average rural uh, uh, person, their income, 50, more than 50%, would come from non-agricultural sources. So uh, it was the non-agricultural part that explained the, um, the income growth, um, and which, again, it's, it's not particularly about uh, a more household or individual-based agriculture. Um, but at the same time, you kind of see why uh, people would attribute the success, let's say the success of the market transition to the reform of uh, decollectivization. Um, uh, politically, it was important. Um, uh, the communes were one of the signature program of the, of this, uh, the former socialist period under, under Chairman Mao. And um, um, getting rid of that uh, and successfully getting rid of that provided the necessary uh, uh, this momentum for 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 the for a uh, for continuing the reforms, um, it uh, it also provided some level of uh, legitimacy to the post Mao leadership, um, which they were trying to really hard to to get, um, and so so yes, they, 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 it was politically important. Uh, every generation of uh, Chinese leadership after Mao, they basically paid tribute to the rural reform, saying this is a great beginning of, of the new period, um, et cetera. Uh, economically, um, it was not so much about this, uh, the decarbonization that has brought so much uh, productivity growth. I, I don't think that was the, a major uh, reason of, of future later economic growth, but it did, uh, by removing the communes, um, by destroying the, the collectives, uh, the, 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 the government uh, successfully, I think, released um, a very uh, ne much needed uh, large number of uh, rural labor into uh, non-agricultural uh, sectors, uh, into the cities, uh, which uh, worked very well with the, the rise of the new economy. Um, they didn't, those, those rural workers, they, they didn't get to work in the old, uh, let's say the public owned sectors, but they could work in the private business, 
uh, uh, something that the government has been encouraging since the beginning of the reform. They can also work in the foreign-owned enterprises, uh, in all those uh, in the newly rising private economy, and they needed uh, labor force. And this rural reform, uh, more than anything else, provided such such labor uh, to them, and uh, and it's a, a great number of educated, healthy, uh, young labor, uh, which were I think instrumental. In, um, in facilitating some of the rapid industrial growth in in part of uh, in the coastal areas of, of China, so um, I think the uh, the the rural reform, the agricultural reform, was less about improving agricultural productivity uh, than break, politically breaking uh, the the communist system. System, the Maoist signature program, um, uh, and also to break whatever uh, possible uh, opposition, political opposition from the from the from the farmers, from the peasants, uh, uh, for for later reforms, uh, economically provided uh, a huge amount of uh, labor to the newly uh, emerged uh, in urban industries. So the, those definitely they were very important, but uh, but I think it's it's not correct to argue it was because they increased whatever uh, incentive or efficiency in agricultural production. That's that's really interesting because every account will say uh, will say that no, actually the, these reforms increased um, agricultural efficiency. And I know that if if anyone wants to look at the technical. Uh, um, data analysis that you do, you have that in your book. You also have that, I think, in, in some articles, if I'm not mistaken, but it's certainly in your book. Um, but that, that is interesting that may, maybe overall efficiency or productivity actually did not gain as much as people think it did in agriculture. Mm-hmm. Um, but that said, I mean, it, you know, it did, you do have that efficiency gain and, and productivity gain in non-agricultural um, uh, uh, kind of sectors. Uh, and overall, I think, uh, you know, the narrative, uh, Xi Jinping this year said that, uh, th- uh, that, um, China has ended absolute, uh, uh, sorry, or extreme poverty in, uh, in, uh, in China or absolute poverty has ended, uh, now in 2020, 2021, uh, which signals, uh, a rise in people's, uh, incomes in their, in their uh, capacity to consume, um, yeah, you know, and I, I, I'm going to quote your book against, uh, uh, you know, uh, you in a sense where you, you say many peasants felt that the quality of life under the collectives was poor, especially in comparison to the material life of ordinary peasants nowadays. Um, so, so the basic level of subsistence uh, by your by your own account was actually quite quite low during the era of, of collectivization and collective agriculture, whereas now it's it's uh, much higher by all accounts, um, and. So, you know, doesn't that show that decollectivization was actually a good? Right. Yes. I. I. Thanks for the uh, for quoting from my <laughs> my, my my book. Uh, uh, the China, I think, different from some of the other former socialist um, uh, countries, uh, they maintained a rather rather smooth transition to the market economy. Um, uh, and maintained a, uh, a continued 
uh, growth, sometimes very rapid growth, uh, over the last uh, three four decades. Um, so it would not be it would be natural, I think, and this average person uh, would would have a much better uh, material material life than than his or her uh, parents or grandparents 30, 40 years ago. So that was uh, was definitely true. I mean, that's something I, I myself observed when I, was at, when I was growing up in China. There's mm-hmm. definitely growth. It's, those are real. Uh, the, uh, 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 but the, the way for us to ask the question is, uh, is that uh, you, you, you might want to think about the uh, counterfactual. <laughs> uh, <laughs> what if uh, that we China followed a different path? Um, and given the growth that China was able to achieve uh, prior to the market reform, uh, it was not as high as let's say you know uh, some of the some of the years uh, in the nineties or early two thousands. Um, uh, 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 but it was a reasonable growth rate. You know, the planning economy has its own way of promoting growth. And uh, until today, a large part of China's growth was still, I think, relying on state-directed uh, uh, investment. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, in the pre-market reform days, those were basic techniques that the state would, would use. Uh, so uh, I think the the growth rate uh, might be lower, but it would uh, but after twenty thirty years, the achievement would still be remarkable. And also, uh, if again this speak if if they actually were able to do that, then uh, it would be a much more uh, developed uh, society with a remarkably egalitarian. Uh, social structure, and that would be something uh, uh, I would say uh, probably more desirable than the one that we live in. Um, so yes, there is. I I think that the the Chinese uh, government has done uh, a tremendous amount of work uh, in in um, um, reducing poverty, um, uh, but there is also. Uh, a lot of progress is definitely happening, uh, but at the same time, um, on a theoretical level, what the anti the poverty reduction programs, uh, what they're only looking at is how much income you get, mm-hmm. monetary income you get, and uh, that that they didn't actually pay any attention to the uh, the, the social relations. That people live in, uh, what kind of job that they they're doing? How did they actually get those income, and what what what's the price of getting those incomes? Uh, for example, if someone lived in a village uh, and they found that they couldn't actually um, provide uh, enough cash income to support the family's medical or health expenses. Then they would have to uh, become a migrant worker. They go to the cities and take some jobs. Uh, that industrial urban job might give you a, a better monetary income, 
uh, so by calculation, then you are out of poverty. Uh, but it's not as it's not that clear cut. Uh, in the village, uh, there's a lot of things. Uh, that do not come into monetary income calculation, but you still enjoy. Uh, there's self-produced uh, 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 vegetables and food that you can eat without paying anything. Uh, there's uh, the community that you're familiar with. There's all the uh, the roots. Um, uh, and, uh, uh, but if you move into the uh, city, uh, you get higher monetary income, but the, all the expenses are also much higher. So uh, uh, it's it's not clear how uh, how a market economy anywhere would abolish poverty. Um, I, I don't. I think it's very hard to to do so uh, in in the market economy dominated by by the private uh, enterprises. Um, in fact. If you look at the, the labor statistics, um, a large number of those uh, workers, when they go to the cities, uh, they don't get to work in a formal uh, uh, economy, uh, you know, with wages and welfare, with uh, pensions. They don't get any of that. They work in the informal sector. Um, actually, more than 50%, 60% of Chinese work, urban workforce they work in the informal sector, and uh, uh, they they work long hours, um, and they don't have all those regular benefits that that associated with a formal sector uh, uh, worker. So, um, so it, it yes, they get higher monetary income, um, so they are out of poverty in that regard. Uh, but I wouldn't consider them really out of poverty. Uh, they just uh, from let's say rural poverty to urban poverty. That's right. how I would look at this. Right, and, and I think we we uh, spoke to your colleague Dr. Yin Chan earlier as well, and she also. Um, well, I, you guys work together on a lot of stuff, so so I imagine you have similar views. But um, I think she was even more explicit in the sense that she said she thinks the situation of a lot of these workers who have extremely miserable working conditions. Uh, and, and, you know, we see documentaries coming out of China about workers' conditions, and they're very brutal. It's, it's really bad. Not to say that in other parts of the world, uh, conditions are particularly better. Uh, but certainly, she, she seemed to, to feel like the commune life was qualitatively better um, than uh, the, the kind of worker life now, even if you do get to consume more uh, stuff now. Right, right. Um, uh in some other places, like in former Soviet Union, uh, people even probably don't get to say they live materially better than than, than before. Uh, but because there is a long depression, uh, but in China, I think it's definitely true to to argue that uh, people have more stuff uh, than before. There's improvement in labor productivity. There's improvement in social wealth. Um, uh, a lot of things, although they also come with severe uh, cost as well, environmental cost, um, uh, social cost. Um, and I, I think, again, using the counterfactual, if, if China uh, followed a different path, uh, 
uh, a more egalitarian uh, non-market uh, development path, uh, uh, it would be, I think it would be a, 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 also quite a comfortable, materially comfortable, and also socially uh, progressive uh, and, and, um, uh, and it's more, more uh, um, egalitarian, uh, harmonious society than what we live in right now. Well, well, let me ask you with respect to that. If the logic of the Chinese leadership is, look, we're still so far behind the West. We need to scale up our productive forces rapidly so that we can move toward uh, producing our own uh, military equipment, we can, you know, so that we can actually stand and compete with uh, the West in the same way that the Soviet Union had to rapidly industrialize in the 1930s so that it could resist uh, invasion from from Germany, which which everybody knew was just a matter of time. Um, then, then do you think uh, that that justifies moving towards a market economy? That even even though it, it, it produces inequality, um, that nevertheless and huge and incredible inequality in China, uh, but nevertheless it's allowed China to to catch up much faster. Um, which is you know the, the argument I'm making I think is is also an argument that many people would would say and I'm, I wonder how you would weigh in on this that that in fact China is socialist. Uh, you know. It, a lot of people would argue, no, it's actually capitalist, state-directed capitalism. But they're saying, no, no, it's, it's just the Chinese Communist Party is just kind of biding its time, uh, raising the, the level of development of its productive forces, of its industry, um, so that it, it can it can compete with the West. And then eventually it will transition to a more egalitarian society, which is which is already evident from the kinds of discourse that, uh, that uh, uh, Xi Jinping um, and other Chinese leaders uh, give us. So... Uh, also, uh, with respect to the, the decollectivization itself, uh, I think Samir Amin has, has stated that he does not think uh, that these uh, that this was a capitalist reform because this, the land is still owned by the state. It's it's still uh, collectively, sorry, or, or it's collectively owned land still, if not the state that owns it. Um, it's just that the, the use of the, the land is individualized. Uh, so he says that that can't be considered capitalism. So where do you stand on, on this kind of socialism versus capitalism question? Oh, thanks uh, for, for, for this very important question. I, uh, I, I first want to mention I have a lot of respect uh, for just Samir Amin. Uh, I, I, in, you know, I learned a lot from his work. Uh, I, at the same time, I <laughs> that um, um, Mm. Again, Amin has already passed away. So I, I, I think when he talked about uh, the what's going on in China, mm, he might have his own. Uh, so it, it's 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 partly, you know, maybe his analysis, but he is also maybe part partly his his rhetoric. You know these. It is trying to. Uh, it's it's maybe a it's a hope it's a wish from from Amin, uh, uh, and for for some time I think uh, uh, the uh, especially during the decolonization years and the years following those, um, 
people still talk about uh, socialism in the countryside. Uh, they talk about, okay, now we divided the land to every household, but eventually we're still going to do socialism and we're going to uh, do actives uh, in the countryside again with with much <laughs> higher level of uh, 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 productive forces. That's the term that people use. Um, so they argued, the argument was that uh, because of the level of productive forces was relatively low in China, uh, it was premature to build collectives. You got to have, you have to wait a, a longer time to build the productive forces better so that we can do socialism. Um, I think it's a, it's a good wish, definitely. Um, it, uh, the problem is, uh, who is going to do this? Right. Um, yeah, the, the, if by getting rid of this whole previous socialist uh, social relations of economic structure, you are building uh, very rapidly a new kind of class. It's capitalist class or something like that. Um, and uh, they become more and more influential. And, uh, and how, how is it feasible to think that sometime in the future, that uh, they they could just surrender and say, oh, please take my money. Uh, it, it's uh, I, it, again, it, it's something. It would be great if they do that, but in history, that has not happened so far. So uh, I think uh, uh, the only thing that people are discussing uh, uh, nowadays about this is focuses on the the Chinese uh, Communist Party. Because it is not clear. I mean, people have disagreements about whether it's the capitalist class that has controlled, let's say, the Communist Party, or the Communist Party actually has to have ultimate control of the capitalist class. Um, sometimes they get mingled together. That uh, it's not. They have uh, maybe this top leadership. Their family members would also. Uh, be the owner of a big private company or some financial, a uh, big financial firm. Um, and so if you have things like that, you would wonder um, how, how far can they go? Uh, they would have their own constraints. Uh, if they really want to do something radical, uh, I think they would... Uh, um, even we we don't think about all the uh, political risk. Uh, it would basically means that you, you have to uh, give up a lot of wealth uh, that that the current society is 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 uh, is possessing. Uh, you are basically saying, "Well, we're gonna pub, you know doing this public ownership for all the major uh, financial firms." Or all the major industrial groups, so that would basically you're saying goodbye to the entire <laughs> world capitalism, uh, and the Chinese economy is very reliant on world capitalism. Even the U.S. sanctions could hurt the Chinese economy significantly. Uh, not to mention you're saying goodbye to the entire world capital capitalist class. I, I think that's a, a risk even economically that the leadership 
would not consider taking. Um, um, so I, again, I understand why many scholars and uh, um, very sympathetic people, they, they would, they would uh, consider China to be socialist uh, or different, at least different from many other capitalist societies. Um, I, I do think, I do agree that there are elements in the Chinese society that makes it different uh, from many other capitalist societies. And uh, it cannot, for example, cannot entirely get rid of the former socialist legacy because the very basis, the foundation of the Chinese modern society was on socialism, Marxism. Uh, uh, the whole legitimacy of the government comes from socialism. It, it would be unimaginable if, the, let's say, uh, even though I think the many people in, in the Communist Party, the leadership, they wanted to get rid of the term communist. Why don't we just be a social democrat party? Um, that was actual proposal like that, I think. Uh, but I think if they actually do that, it would be political suicide. Uh, they would lose whatever legitimacy that they have been accumulating over the years. Um, and uh, that would not be something that, that they, they want to see. So they couldn't actually get rid of many elements of the, you, said, you can say socialist rhetoric or some of the socialist policies. Uh, and they're doing, still doing this market reform, market transition. And they have conflicts. Uh, I think those some of the, the conflicts would be uh, vital, uh, uh, you know, for for a for, for if if there the if if there is a momentum for social change, then such conflict will be vital for for the uh, the Chinese society to 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 further evolve into uh, something different. So I I I do think there is. Uh, great potential for socialism in, in China, uh, but but now uh, the current direction uh, is getting away from socialism. Uh, but they couldn't quite even totally get away. <laughs> they keep some of that. So that's how I think about this. But but if if it's uh, if just look at the economy itself, I think it's fair to say that the economy is. Uh, uh, mostly controlled by the by capitalist class, and it's running just like any other capitalist economy. Right. So, I, and I think that's that's kind of a, a really interesting. Um, uh, I, I I don't know if it's a paradox or if it's a constraint. It's, it's an important constraint upon capitalism in in China mm -hmm. is both the legacy of socialism and the the kind of. Um, I think feeling on the part of the Chinese Communist Party and the leadership that. Uh, that side payments, so to speak, to the working classes are still necessary. Like you, you do need to raise incomes. It's not something that we can do um, without it, whether that's because of productivity gains or, or other things. Um, it, it's entirely in the kind of register of a, of a kind of capitalist or social democratic idea of absolute poverty uh, as opposed to relative poverty, which then we'd be looking at inequality. Um, so, so there are those, it is that kind of mixed uh, view that yeah, there's problems with China, uh, but there's also great uh, achievements, have you've, as you've pointed out. Um, 
so it, it, with, looking at that, like the final kind of question that I would I would want to ask of you, uh, and as I usually ask of of, uh, of most guests, is if if you're speaking to students in Pakistan, mm-hmm. who um, for them for a lot of them China is extremely important because okay you have an, an old kind of westernized elite they're very rich they get to go to the United States they get to go to Canada they get to go to the UK to study. Um, Otherwise, you know, most of their family uh, members might might have gone to the Gulf to get jobs, but they're not ever going to see Western society. And, and if, if you go to the Gulf, it's just for work. Uh, they don't even treat you uh, in a very good way. Um, and those opportunities that they don't have, now China is giving to them. China is giving them scholarships. China is saying to Pakistani students, come, come to China, study with us, study with the, some of the world's best scholars uh, scientific minds um, and, and go back. China is saying to Pakistan, we are going to invest $60 billion in your country um, through CPEC when nobody else uh, wanted to invest in Pakistan. China is saying, we're going to stand with you defensively as well when, when nobody else is standing with, with Pakistan. Um, that, that, uh, you know, China is our all-weather friend. That's one thing. The other thing is what you said, uh, you know, China had schools in every village. Uh, we still have a situation where one uh, uh, out of every two chil- uh, 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 children is not going to school. Uh, you know, people have their, their own land. Even uh, we still don't have land reforms. We still have incredible inequality in the countryside. Um, so to the extent that, that the Pakistani ruling class is looking at China, our prime minister says, you know, China needs to be our model of development. Uh, though he adds, often says the last 30 years of China's development needs to be our model, not the, not not necessarily the revolutionary part. Um, but yeah, Pakistani students, Pakistani youth, and I'm not even talking about the elites, I'm, I'm just talking about middle class, are looking at China as this incredibly growing society with modern technology, which is able to stand up against uh, US uh, imperialism. Uh, you know, What would you say to them about how to approach the study of China, how to approach the study of development and political economy? Um, Thank you so much for the question. I I wish I can speak Wudu or uh, <laughs> some, some other language that they they, they can they are more familiar with. Uh, th- th- let me say that uh, it, it's <laughs> on the on the level of uh, uh, um, um, different you know, different society different among different nations. Uh, I think that. That for a long time the, the Chinese people had a special <laughs> uh, connection, felt a special connection with with uh, you know the Pakistan uh, people. Uh, uh, I, I I don't know if you know this, but the, I think among the the younger generation in China, when they talk about Pakistan uh, or the people in Pakistan, they would they would uh, they would use a specific term. Uh, but uh, I think it basically means uh, the Pakistani brothers. You know, they, oh, they wow. use this. <laughs> I didn't know that. I did not. Well, I mean, I, I, obviously, they, you know, it's it, it's not precise to say it's brothers, brothers, sisters. But it's really something like uh, iron. You know, Pakistan iron. Uh, I think that was. But it really means the iron relationship mm. with Pakistan. So it's all weather. Is iron. You can't break. <laughs> uh, uh, so there is uh, definitely uh, a lot of um, uh, respect, a lot of uh, goodwill um, 
uh, uh, among the just you know normal people in in, in China, um, uh, and I would think it would it would be great if more students uh, from Pakistan can if they can if they get offered the opportunity get a scholarship they should definitely go to um, go to China they can go to different parts of China and they should learn learn some of the achievements uh, learn some of the lessons uh, something that uh, something that China made mistakes and you you don't want Pakistan to 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 make that the same mistake uh, I think it's it's important to learn from some of the scholars of course. Um, you also get to learn the the, the people in, in China and listen to to them. Learning from the people is also is also very very important. Uh, and going to different places, um, uh, it's it's uh, I, I think it it it's it itself is a great learning experience. And plus, uh, China is. <laughs> I think provides a safer environment compared to the United States um, <laughs> in all kinds of ways. Uh, so yes, so I would strongly encourage students if you're interested, uh, they get the opportunity. Why don't you just go and and um, uh, and you know it will be a it will be a worthwhile experience. Um, but regarding the 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 strategy for development. Um, there are there are definitely things, as you mentioned, uh, that China has done before, uh, which are very super important, like land reform. But uh, Pakistan uh, has not yet uh, done the reform. Um, that is something that uh, it's it's uh, we know how important that is. Uh, but uh, but it's clear with without a proper momentum, you cannot do it. Um, <laughs> the, the you know the the government or the uh, any there is no movement for that right now in Pakistan uh, or many other places in the world. Uh, but there there are there are things I think uh, that China has done. That uh, uh, the, the people in Pakistan can can try to selectively uh, uh, learn. Uh, for example, the, China still keeps a this very clear industrial policy. Um, that even the let's say the, the government, the ruling class in Pakistan wouldn't uh, wouldn't mind like, doing industrial policy. Uh, they would uh, uh, they would try to identify and, and try to support s certain industries in Pakistan so that eventually they can compete with the other other countries uh, they can be they can be a leader of a certain industry I think it's it is a, a matter of it definitely it, there's you need to have a certain level of expertise you need to have a, some other technical equipments uh, materials uh, but I, I think the most important part of that is you need to have a uh, really uh, dedicated, determined uh, government to do the industrial policy because you you might have failures. Let's say you you support ten projects and maybe nine projects would fail, uh, but maybe one of them would succeed. 
but that one su- success would bring some tremendous changes、uh, to the economy.、Um, you know, this one industry can be the、uh, something that、uh, have、uh, impact on many other potential industry, some many other opportunities. So I, I think that's definitely something that Pakistan can, can do, and it can、um, it can definitely work with the Chinese government、uh, to learn from some of the uh, uh, the successes.、Uh, if let's say, for example, if、uh, if the if the Chinese leadership wants to do the Belt and Road Initiative,、uh, they wanted to build.、Uh, Some certain type of infrastructure projects in Pakistan. Then, then I think Pakistan can can、uh, think about this very carefully. You know, out of all kinds of comparisons,、uh, what kind of infrastructure infrastructure is the best、uh, for facilitating indigenous,、uh, you know,、uh, local development, and、uh, they can negotiate with the Chinese developers or the companies. The state-owned com- companies they can compare the, the the terms with let's say offers from the United States or Britain.、Uh, then they choose the the best offer.、Uh, I think it would be、uh, a a convenient way to、uh, to expedite some of the this process of of development. You can quickly get started. I think the the problem with our ruling class is that.、Uh... There may be better rail coming with, through CPEC and through the cooperation with China, but、uh, they're far more interested in real estate projects、uh, okay. than they are well, in productive industry. Well, to be fair, I mean, every every ruling class loves real, real estate. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it's a stable source of, of rent income.、Uh, so yeah, <laughs> but it, the Chinese development experience. Has its own successes,、uh, but it, it has also its own contradictions.、Um, the same was true for the collective era. The same is the you know it was the market reform era.、Um, I think any student of, of development would the task for us is to understand、uh, all those achievements and the contradictions of each model, and and we can discuss. What will be the better option、uh, for for the community or the, the the country they're working in? How can we learn from those, and how can we do a better job in you know promoting、uh, human development?